0: Welcome back to The Full Cat with Bruce Dobigan. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and this is where curiosity leads me. If you enjoy these podcasts, do go to iTunes under Not The Public Podcast and subscribe. We're also available on a number of your other favorite platforms, and of course on our website, Not The Public Broadcaster. As we speak, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg is watching his net value sink by billions. That's because the political world has decided that what was fine for Barack Obama is nigh-on criminal for Donald Trump. What is that problem? Well, it appears that Facebook has allowed the personal data it obtains when subscribers join to be mined by a number of political interests. Companies such as Cambridge Analytica, a British company, have been used by parties on both sides of the aisle to target their voters. Some credit their work with helping Donald Trump win the presidency. Others are not so sure. In Canada, it's being claimed that the Liberals also have used the data from Cambridge Analytica. Okay, well, that's as sophisticated as I can get on the subject. That's why we've invited our friend Jesse Hirsch back to the full account. When we don't understand the world of data, tech, or social media, we call on Jesse, who lectures and writes on these subjects, for Luddites like me. He's a futurist and an Internet researcher. He joins us this episode to help us unpack the Facebook story. Welcome back, Jesse. Thanks, Bruce. First, uh, we don't pay for Facebook, of course. It's free, so why should we be concerned how they use our data?
1: Well, because even according to Facebook, it's still our data. I mean, Facebook has, uh, as a kind of business, depends upon their user's trust. And the social contract, as it were, is that we still retain ownership of that data. And Facebook then uses it to provide us with communication services, photo services, video services, So that means that we still have rights to that data, and that part of the relationship we have with Facebook is they need to protect that data on our behalf. And that's why this particular episode has been so embarrassing for Facebook, because it questions their ability to protect our information. Mm. It, on the one hand, acknowledges the value of our information, that there will be lots of people who desire it. But it also questions whether Facebook alone, without any government supervision, is responsible enough to, to keep it safe
0: and secure. Yeah. Well, as I say, I'm like one of those Luddites who, uh, who just signed up, didn't read the fine print, or etc. Et How much do they have? I mean, I, I see, you know, when I look up a sweater, 15 minutes later, I'm getting sweater ads, etc. How much data do they have on me?
1: A ridiculous amount, in part because Facebook is, on the one hand, an advertising company in that they run advertising networks beyond just Facebook.com. Their advertising network is really second only to Google in terms of working with partner websites and other apps as a way of collecting more information about consumers so they can target you more accurately in terms of your interests and consumer desires. But Facebook's also a data company in that they own uh, a bunch of apps like Instagram, uh, like WhatsApp, the types of messengers, but they even own analytic apps. So the way in which other apps on your phone collect data that aren't even associated with Facebook, they often have access to that data as well. So they're kind of equivalent to a vacuum cleaner on the internet and on (laughs) smartphones, just sucking up as much data as possible in the hopes that it makes their advertising business more accurate and they're actually able to serve you with ads that you find useful because it's for stuff that you're interested in buying.
0: Yeah, I, I gather as well that they're able to tell stuff about my friend's data or my friends are able to tell stuff about my data as well.
1: Well, the social context adds a lot of the value because we are very much influenced by our peers, which, you know, is an age issue in terms of whether you're a teenager or whether you're middle age or older. But it also reflects the, the way in which if our friends start buying instant pots and then start posting on Facebook how much they love their instant pot. Well, that increases the likelihood of us buying an Instant Pot. Yeah. So it it also speaks to the power of recommendation and influence when it comes to consumer purchases. Now, in this particular instance, it speaks to an era that no longer exists where you could get access to someone's data via one of their friends. And so, you know, the espionage analogy, it's like turning them into a double agent and getting them to spy on their friends by getting them to install an app. Mm. And and that's how this particular uh, episode with Cambridge Analytica was able to scale to over 50 million users in that they only got about 700,000 users to do this personality quiz and install this app. But because they were then able to access all of those users' friends, that's how the number got up to 50 million. Now, Facebook doesn't, uh, uh, enable or doesn't allow this anymore. And they've recently announced that they're going to do a full audit on that era to see what other apps were able to sort of harness that kind of friends of friends data. But those t- sorts of features still kind of exist today. And it's partly why it's so important to go through your privacy settings. Because one of the privacy settings is, you know, things like friends of friends that don't so much allow an app developer to harvest your data, but do allow friends of friends to kind of browse at stuff that you thought might have been private. So it speaks to how the social in social media is really important, both in terms of the value of the data, but also in terms of who has access to that data.
0: Instant pot is quite good, by the way. I'm glad you brought that. <laughs> it is quite a good product. You, you mentioned just in passing there about how they use this uh, this test, this uh, identity test or whatever it was. Uh, just explain in a little more detail exactly what it was. Uh, some of us don't even know. We may have filled it in. What what exactly was it they were asking for?
1: So this is out of social psychology, and it's a personality test. Ah. And, and psychologists use this quiz. It It can range from anywhere from 64 questions down to 16, and it's meant to create a personality profile of the person who fills it out. And it looks at things like agreeability or neuroticism or uh, uh, your trustworthiness or your gullibility. It, It has a range of personality conclusions by asking you different questions that You'll often see these in the forms of, you know, which Game of Thrones character are you yeah, or yeah. which Muppet are you <laughs> in that they can be wrapped around uh, a certain, say, fiction or television shows. But they they have a framework that really tries to get your relationship with the world, mm-hmm. the, the attitudes you have from a, a psychological perspective that are then often used for social science research. But are also used for marketing in terms of if you 're agreeable, then you might be more likely to you know uh, be persuaded to buy something versus if you 're neurotic, well then you might be more susceptible to conspiracy theories right so it, it 's a way of learning more about the individual by getting them to answer these questions that then allow the psychologist or the researcher to really create a profile that then helps them target you with marketing or political information.
0: Now, I guess this isn't necessarily new. I mean, it's new because it's in the tech world. But, I mean, we used to see these things in magazines and stuff in the past. In the back pages of magazines, there would be, you know, fill in a personality test or whatever. And I guess magazines used to use this sort of, this sort of data in the same way in a, in a much less sophisticated way, right? It's been the
1: pillar of advertising for a couple of decades now. What the Internet's allowed is for an even more individualized targeting. So with the magazine, they sort of generally knew who their audience was. Now they specifically know that it's Bruce and it's Jesse and, you know, they both play golf and they're both interested in politics. So it's much more precise. But this is the irony of how people are looking at this in the context of politics But politics is years behind the world of marketing when it comes to figuring out how to persuade people and figuring out how to target people based on their interests. So for the advertising and marketing world, this is old news. and, And this is the stuff that they've been doing for quite some time. But political parties are now figuring out how to engage in this kind of marketing. And in particular, they use it for fundraising. They use it to figure out. Not only who to target in terms of asking for more money, but why to target them, whether they're you know, going to be freaked out about taxes or you know, whether they're going to be paranoid about uh, government surveillance. Like Whatever the political issue may be, mm-hmm. this kind of personality testing helps a political party or a political campaign figure out what buttons to press amongst their supporters to get them to cough up more dough.
0: I mean, there's some debate about just how, you know, how important it was to the 2016 election or the 2012 election, uh, how important this was. I mean, we heard coming out of the 2012 election, it was all about Nate Silver and these people who had all of these these analytics that they were using. And then, of course, uh, Trump's guy in 2016, who is, I think he's gone on now, now, he's going to be managing his campaign in 2020 uh, for the presidency. He had this sort of, you know, uh, Rube, uh, what do you call it, Rube Goldberg kind of invention himself. Uh, you you know, we keep hearing about these things after the fact, and and try to to put them into context. Do they work that well, or is it just that we don't understand them?
1: It's a little bit of both. Uh, they, they certainly make a difference. How much of a difference is is uh, hotly contested. Certainly, social psychologists who study the efficacy of these types of personality quizzes are increasingly skeptical as to their accuracy. As well as how effective people may be to that kind of persuasion. But when you have very close races, as we saw in the US presidential election, yeah. or in Ontario, in, in terms of the conservative leadership race, where the margin of victory is so slim, then it is safe to say that these types of data driven campaigns can make a difference. Mm they're not gonna sway true believers. They're they're not gonna sway people who have put in the time to do the research and make a really informed decision. But where they can have an impact is on the casual voter, on the person who doesn't watch the news, who doesn't really talk about politics at the dinner table, but is still gonna vote. And, And those are the people who a few targeted Facebook ads can really shift their perception or shift their political position in part because they're not getting information from anywhere else. Right. They're not watching the news. They're not, you know, chatting with friends about politics. And while that is not most voters, that's enough voters to actually make a difference in tight contests. And that's why this particular type of data driven campaigning and and micro-targeting, because you know, the other side of this is it's really quite affordable. It, it, You know, TV advertising is expensive. Radio and print advertising is expensive. But targeted digital advertising can be done for very cheap, especially if the goal is not a, a high-end advertisement, but just a quick little message to someone who you're hoping to catch amongst their busy day. Yeah. That sort of stuff is really affordable, and that's why campaigns are, are putting more and more effort into collecting data so they can do this type of cheap, targeted advertising, especially when it comes to those casual voters who this might be their only contact with the election at all. So the analogy here is less sort of you know advertising in a traditional sense and more door-knocking. Mm. That this is just digital door knocking. You're just trying to get contact with the voter. And the more you know about them when you knock on their door, the more likely that they're going to listen to what you have to say. And it's the scale by which you can knock on all the doors that makes this uh, a, a really competitive option for campaigns to pursue.
0: You know, I know I've done some small advertising or some small research stuff for trying to trace things on my website, and I've also been involved, and I'm trying to figure out basically how to make it work for me. So it sounds a little bit familiar because I'm trying to find, obviously, an audience for the podcast and for the stuff that I post. Uh, you're listening to The Full Cat with Bruce Dobigan. our guest this episode is tech author, futurist, and Internet researcher Jesse Hirsch. Uh, so do I take it from what you're saying that you think that maybe these supposed Russian botwell are not supposed? We know they're, they exist. These Russian bots that were active during the election could have, in your opinion, could have had an influence on, on the election?
1: Oh, absolutely. And it doesn't mean that they had so much of an influence as to ensure that Trump won. You know, obviously, the 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 Clinton campaign deserves credit for losing the election <laughs> because they did an absolutely horrible job on their own. Yeah. But, you know, you have to tip your hat to the R- Russian intelligence services that in the age of information, they are developing the capacity to exercise their foreign policy with increasing effectiveness. Yeah. And it's not just the U.S. elections. It's all around the world. And it, it speaks to what's often called soft power rather than hard power, like where hard power is tanks and and you know military might soft power is information and yeah. influencing elections and influencing public policy debates and that's where the russians quite openly are saying yeah this is how we ensure that we we serve our interests this is how we ensure that we get our way and you know, other governments should be taking note and figuring out how they can influence p- global public policy and how they can have successful foreign policy, because you know the nature of an information society is that it, it it's not just the CBC. People can get information from anywhere they want. Yeah. That's the joy of podcasting, and and that's where I think other governments are an era behind when it comes to communicating with the public and Russia's is just taking advantage of that. Mm. They're taking advantage of the fact that, you know, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats, let alone the state department, that they just don't know how to compete for the battle of ideas, the way that other foreign entities are able to, mm. you know, uh, Americans get paranoid about foreign entities, but look here in Canada, we have every society in the world living in Canada, so you know not only is Canadian elections certainly influenced by foreign entities, but Canadians are influencing foreign elections. Yeah, I mean, just about every election that happens anywhere in the world, we've got diaspora here in Canada using the internet sure. to influence th- that election, and that's just the that's just you know the era we're in. That's the global village. And I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily. I think it's an issue of innovation. And we need to step up our game and figure out how you know, we can advance Canadian interest globally via the Internet and via social media. Uh,
0: the, the other concern is how powerful Facebook and the other huge social media sites have become. And there's a lot of concern about them uh, you know, censoring their users and applying their own standard of what's good and what's not good. Uh, can they do this fairly
1: no, not at all. And and it's because they lack the self-awareness, right? And you know, if you you take let's say a powerful tool like a buzz saw or like a chainsaw in the hands of a well-trained adult, it's a perfectly safe tool. In the hands of a toddler, look out. You know, there's
0: <laughs> danger will ensue.
1: Yes. And and that's kind of the situation we have with social media. That you know, maybe toddler's not the right example. These are, you know, tweens or young teenagers right. who really don't understand the power they possess. They do not have the responsibility to secure or properly manage it. And they don't have that outside perspective. They don't have the critical perspective. Yeah. And, you know, the example I use of Facebook is, you know, social scientists talk about how Facebook is an echo chamber. How when Facebook users sort of select their friends and select the information they desire, it usually ends up reinforcing their worldview, Mm -hmm. the way that conservatives tend to hang out with conservatives and liberals tend to hang out with liberals. Well, what if Facebook, as a corporate entity, was an echo chamber because they use Facebook to run Facebook? Yeah. So they literally don't listen to outside critics and they don't listen to people with outside perspectives, so they don't really have a clue as to what Facebook is and to how powerful it is
0: and and If their reality is let's say Silicon Valley where they live and they work and they know people there, if they think that's the totality of their universe, I think that also affects it right
1: absolutely yeah. and you know no one is suggesting that the government should run Facebook. But I think what is necessary is that there be oversight of Facebook. And it doesn't even have to be government oversight of Facebook. Like I would love to see a situation where Facebook uh, adopted a kind of representative democracy, where Facebook users could elect a kind of parliament that oversaw what Facebook the company did. And if they did something like that, it would benefit the company tremendously. Like, it would go a long way towards earning their users' trust and creating the kind of stability that advertisers and commercial partners desire. Because really what we're describing is a crisis of governance. Facebook doesn't know how to govern Facebook. And at the same time, I don't think that they even have the ability to find the problems that are dealing with it. Yeah. So it would be to their benefit to work with their users, which they kind of say they want to do, to actually help them be responsible with what is a, a very powerful platform.
0: Uh, how much trouble is Zucker, Zuckerberg in here?
1: Quite a bit. And, and it, it really has to do with the, the, this notion of trust, but also the nature of the regulation that they will face. Because we're not just talking North America, you know, Europe certainly has a much stronger appetite to regulate Facebook. But let's not forget the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is China, Yep. let alone the Philippines, let alone Turkey, let alone Iran, you know, or, or India, all of whom have very real interests in having tight control over Facebook, that Facebook has successfully resisted. But that all of a sudden, it's going to be very difficult for them to resist. Yeah. So the question of how they're regulated all of a sudden becomes really important. And that's where Zuckerberg, in his interview on CNN, was acknowledging that, yes, maybe regulation is a good thing. Because all of a sudden, they're thinking, we want to make sure that it's regulation that helps us, yeah. rather than regulation that ruins it. Because you know, if the Chinese model of regulating Facebook... You know, were became the global standard. People would just leave Facebook. It would be the end of their business. Yeah. Right. It's not like we have a contract with them, and there's tons of alternatives. So they are really vulnerable. They they have a huge advantage, which is all the data that they possess. But there, this really is a pivotal point in which they need to demonstrate that they are responsible. Otherwise, governments will come down too heavy. And users will take off because they can and they'll find other sites to connect with family and friends.
0: It, it seemed easier when the, the sort of monopolists looked like J.P. Morgan. They were bankers with a three-piece suit, and they looked very doer, etc. People still have their this trouble getting their head around the idea. They look at Zuckerberg and the people who who operate the internet to a large extent with their jeans and T-shirts, and and they can't they can't see them as being the same kind of person. And I I think that's also part of the problem with us getting our heads around how we how we uh, um, bring them to heel to a certain extent is that we they, they look so benign.
1: Well, and they're also wrapped in the, the myth of innovation and youthfulness, Yeah, that young people are the drivers of innovation, therefore we shouldn't hinder their efforts. But I, I think the other difficulty we have in making that connection is, A, because Facebook's free, we don't really feel the economics of it. Yeah. Versus if you're paying more for heating or if you're paying more for electricity or if you're paying more for banking services, you feel that. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, we got to break up these monopolies. But then the other issue is harm. That the other ways that like tobacco or other monopolies have been broken up was when it was easy to see the harm that they were doing to consumers. Whereas with Facebook, it's hard to see that harm. And that's why this Cambridge Analytica episode has been such a catalyst, because all of a sudden we get a sense of the harm of, oh, we don't want to be manipulated. And, oh, we don't like people to prey upon us. We want to make our own decisions. We want to make up our own minds. So I think when we start understanding that, that's when we're like, oh, I get it. Maybe these guys shouldn't have free reign to do whatever they want to us.
0: It it, it seems we're at some sort of a tipping point, that's for sure, in in terms of all of this. And uh, it's not just, oh, there's somebody I went to high school with on Facebook. (laughs) I think we understand that's a little bit deeper than that now. (laughs) Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Bruce. You've been listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this episode was tech author and futurist Jesse Hirsch. His website is jessehirsch.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count on all our podcasts at iTunes and on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. I'm also going to be appearing three times a week with Jeff Samet on Sirius XM Radio, Channel 167 Canada Talks, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at noon. I'll post those conversations on my website, on Twitter, and on my Facebook page. <laughs> I had to get that in there. Uh, if you miss it the first time around, till the next time. This is Bruce going and remember, the story isn't complete till it reaches the full count.